You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. One thing that strikes me about both of your guys' work is uh, this is life uh, at 11. I mean, you guys both really turn up the volume. But what I like is that you use the way you use details of, uh, in your uh, narration uh, technique to make this wild, over-the-top stuff to put us there so vividly. Sure. That life at 11 seems like, oh my God, this is really happening and it probably happens a lot. So, uh, Matt, uh, I'd like you to talk just a little bit about um, the prose style in this book, which I think is, re both of you guys have really funny prose. And I think one, the way you do that is to, we all live our lives at a fairly calm rate, or most of us, and, and you guys just... Uh, turn up the volume a little bit. So how do you turn up the volume? Well, you know, uh, I like books that push me and aren't... I mean, I, I wrote this book very much after what I like, which is stuff that is more inventive, more interesting than usual. Um, so that is what pushes me to, to... I think it's also very much like a first novel thing in, in some extent. Like, you push... Like, the first one, you're just zany and you don't know about any rules and you're not, like, hanging out with fuddy-duddy-ish older people who are nothing personal to anybody, but, uh, but uh, there's, no, there's nobody telling you no. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a, a, a beautiful naivete about it, and you can just push ahead, and yeah, those, that makes sense. We'll compare two things that have nothing. We'll compare a whale to a refrigerator, you know? I mean, um, there's a certain freedom that I just rode with this that was a lot of fun. And I think the books that excite me the most, the prose style that excites me the most, are the people who do the work to reach for the most interesting word but also make it effortless. You know, there's, a, there's kind of a, a balance you have to find of an interesting description that doesn't make you work hard to get through. It just feels like, oh, and this was a fresh view on the life I live. So you can take something very mundane and make it interesting by picking words that are more exciting. So I've, I really do try to, you know, the first drafts usually have about half of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you got to keep going and keep going and keep pushing yourself to take the words that are just kind of throw away or easy or the, the words that just came out because it was obvious and, uh, and try and tweak them until they're interesting but they're not work and they're not hitting you over the head and uh, suffocating. <laughs> well, speaking of suffocation, Josh. <laughs> A smooth segue. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, tell, tell us about uh, the pros in, in – uh, in Termite Parade is really wonderful. It's really funny, oh, and it's you. very. It really takes us into a, a very dark and gritty place, but it's fun. Sure. And that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about sure. your work, is you take us to places that we probably never, ever, 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 ever want to see, sure. and, and might think that if we're somebody else to describe them, we wouldn't even want to hear about them. But you make it fun to hear about them. Oh, thank you for saying that. It's funny. Um, one of the writers that I really like is this guy named Charles Baxter. And when he was trying to get a working definition of what the word visceral means, he explains it as though you'd be sitting in the front row of a playhouse 
and the actors are standing on the edge of the stage and their spit is actually flying out of their mouth and hitting you as, as you're sitting in the audience. And I think it's a metaphor that, that works really well for exciting, readable prose, that we want to find this way to engage and to compel an audience who, let's face it, in a, a time of increasing busyness, to give a total stranger, you know, five or six hours of your life, 10 or 15 hours of your life is, we're asking a lot of people. And the kind of thing, what we have to do as artists then is to try to give them the most currency we can back. And it's that sort of vibrancy or that sort of excitement is, is, is how the transaction works. Well, you know, both of these novels too are very uh, Northern California, yeah. San Francisco setting, and they're, they're really gripping it in creating that, uh, that uh, scenario, that setting. So I'd like you each to talk about how your experience of San Francisco informs uh, these novels. I mean, uh, restaurant work somewhere in your life? You know, not, I was a caterer one summer, and I almost got, I basically got fired, so I'm not, not a very good restaurant worker. Um, but yeah, San Francisco, I mean, the French Revolution is a San Francisco family saga loosely structured on the historical French Revolution. And, you know, it's a time of, an, historically, it's a time of intense change and crazy things happening. And that's kind of what San Francisco is really good at. Uh, <laughs> intense change and embracing of change and new things and new ideas. And that can often be, you know, sound great in the abstract, but when you do them, it's really painful. Um, and, you know, that kind of, but that kind of freshness, that kind of exposure to, uh, to new ideas, that kind of excitement and energy to, yeah, there is a better way and we can find it. And it might be a little uncomfortable, but it's worth it uh, for the final result is very much it was essential to the book. Of course, I lived there too, so I was able to like really find a strong sense of setting. And San Francisco has so many fascinating neighborhoods that are so different that you know, if you're not from there, it can be pretty hard to believe that there are such tremendous differences between a city. And I think that adds a lot to the landscape as well. You know, Josh, your book uh, has has a real feel of San Francisco, but also there's a, I think, a, a universal feel. You capture the the scungy part of every <laughs> American city. In the, I like that in the word universe. scungy. That's it, a good word. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's a that's a that's an adjective I'd use in sure. association with that book <laughs> in the in the best possible way. Good. So tell us about uh, create you know going for that the universal scunge. Wow. The um, you know I think it always story has to work literally down to the subtext or down to the universal. So I think it always has to work. Um, up in terms of plot first, like it had to be, you know, this exciting story about this young couple who's kind of doing their thing. Um, and then that may somehow map or modify to some greater statement about humankind. But it has to work literally first. It has to be about these, this man and this woman that you've never met before as a reader. And you're going to get to be kind of a voyeur into their little life, you know, for a few hours. And if that then, you know, resonates with you on a personal note, I think that has to be kind of an added benefit. But it has to be ostensibly about the players for the book to really have the, the clout or the, or the prowess that it needs. Well, um, talk about, uh, you know, just the, you have a, a sensibility, you have, you're like a, a dog. <laughs> Finding, a scungy dog, <laughs> yeah. A, a dog that, that, that knows where all the corpses are and knows where all the best-smelling garbage sure. is. Yeah, so. absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and your characters have that t sensibility, too. I've, I've lived in the Mission District for a long time, and these, I'm writing these three, this three-book cycle, um, and they're all set on the same block in, in the fall of 2007. So it's very much on my mind, this mm -hmm. one precise moment 
um, in, the, in the Mission District, where there's you know, construction going up and down the block. Because if we all see the same thing, we're all seeing entirely different things. You know, John Gardner used to do this cool exercise with his students where he would have them describe a river from the point of view of somebody who's just fallen in love, and then have them describe the river again from the point of view of somebody who's just committed a murder. Um, because they're seeing entirely different things. So it was really fun for me to think about how the construction on this street was going to resonate differently with you know, the, my protagonist from the first book and then the cast in the second book. As they're all looking at the same images, they're having entirely different experiences. So it was really fun for me. And, and I think uh, one of the things that you both we, we uh, do quite well is this idea of personal apocalypse. And mm -hmm. that's, your book starts with the end of the, of the world, Absolutely. in a sense. Yeah. A and I don't think that, uh, I, that it's out often termed that way, personal apocalypse, but I think it's really a, a true way of what happens to us because we all have our worlds that we live in and our parts, parts of our lives, and we all manage to, at some time or another, do something or something happens to us that just it's gone. Sure. So talk about creating that kind well, of Well, what's sense. interesting, too, about yeah. what you were just saying is the idea of people that are supposed to love one, e one another mm -hmm. not behaving as though they love one another. Uh -huh. And I think that's such an interesting motif because, I mean, we're all kind of suffering collaterally for lots of different reasons, be it our loved ones or our extended family or however it goes out. But how those kind of billiard balls ricochet off one another on the table, I think, is the really exciting part about prose. Mm -hmm. I tend to gravitate toward really hyperbolic metaphors. I mean, the first, the Im opening image of Termite Parade is this guy drops his girlfriend down the stairs. He loses his temper as he's carrying her. He turns around and he drops her. I mean, that could very well be a story about infidelity. I mean, it's, it's probably the same metaphor. The stakes are just as high, but that story doesn't interest me as much. I'd rather find a way to kind of exaggerate or, or contort that image and then be able to play with it from the inside out. I think most good stories have some kind of apocalypse in them. I mean, it's it's about, you know, you got to have conflict to make a story interesting. You got to have, there's got to be some tension, there's got to be fighting, there's got to be unhappiness that you work through in some way. And, uh, you know, we have personal apocalypses all the time. And the, I mean, what's interesting about fiction especially is you see, as a reader or as someone who doesn't see through your character's eyes, doesn't see, you know, they're going about their day. They're living their life, whatever. But when you live inside that character's world, you can understand why they're doing what they're doing. You can feel the apocalypse. What they do makes sense. Even if you're, you know, if you're watching a car crash, it doesn't make any sense. But if you're the person inside the car and you thought you see a squirrel and then you turn, um, you know, you, it makes total sense. Um, so that's, that's the kind of thing I think you really get in good fiction is you got to have that car crash happening and you want to be inside the car. Um, to understand why people do the stupid, dumb things they do all the time, consistently. Um, because we, we have reasons for it. You know, we have a reason for why we do things. They may be totally stupid, not make logical sense. But at the time, where we are, there's a certain rationality that, that, we, that we embrace. Um, and I think that's what's interesting. It's funny that you say that, too, because when I teach characterization, I, I always talk about this idea of literary Stockholm Syndrome. So, you know, like so in Stockholm Syndrome is when a, like a, a, a captive becomes sympathetic toward the captor. If you think about it in terms of being kind of locked in an independent consciousness or a mindset that you've never been in before, if a reader or a writer does his job right and really thrusts you into the mechanisms of the mind, you can't help but feel that camaraderie over time, over enough pages. So I really agree with what Matt's saying for sure.
I mean, look at Lolita. I mean, look at Lolita, right? Yeah. I mean, they took a child molester and made him, you kind of like him a little. Yeah. Well, that's... A little. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the things I think you guys both do really well. You, you put us in the minds of people who are so um, outsized, so um, exaggerated. In some ways, it's almost like... Uh, Tolkien or something. It might as well be elves or, 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 or Gandalf for, for how much they have in common with our lives. Sure. But you do it entirely realistically. And I think one of the things you both do really well is to pick out the details and trim out the words so those details really stand out and hit the reader. And so I'd like you each to talk about um, editing your prose. I mean, does this... I'm guessing that what we hear here is not what flows from the tip of your pen, or, or if it is, oh my God. Yeah. Well, Matt probably does that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. One draft? Yeah, totally. <laughs> this, took, this, took an, this took an hour. Yeah. Well, we can talk about that. There's, a, there's an aspect of that that, well, we'll talk about that later. So, Josh? The, um, I think it probably from beginning to end, it takes me about three years to write a book, mm -hmm. um, maybe 15 drafts. I tend to write really quickly, which just means that I'm going to take a lot of wrong turns. So if I, instead of having to write 10 drafts, I probably have to write 20 drafts to catch all the mistakes I've made along the way. Do you write the whole book? I need to get from beginning to end. My first drafts tend to be really malnourished, you know, 120, 140 pages, just to get the plot out to see if it's worth doing the hard work of building characterization. Because that's what's really hard for me, is to make a convincing three-dimensional character on the page. And before I'm going to do that, I'm going to make sure that there's enough conflict, enough sizzle there for mm -hmm. it to be worth your time. But that being said, that scene I just read, I wrote in a, I think it was a day trip, and it just came out in such a way that it worked. I didn't really have to do anything to it. Mm. I wrote that in, a, I think, an afternoon. I, not a fan of Reno. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, talk about creating this family. I mean, uh, the, the beginning of your book is, uh, all of your book is hilarious. Thank you. <laughs> it's really fun to read, and it's really involving. But we meet this character at the beginning who is literally outsized. Yeah. And, and you, yet you make us believe in her. Uh, actually, that came out in a couple of days, just in the morning. I mean, that was a pretty good... I fell in love with this character. You know, she's a big, brassy lady, and you better be in the mood for that, you know. But uh, but she has a lot of fun with life, and from her eyes, you know, the decisions she makes are just extremely colorful, and, uh, and I wanted to hang around and see what she would do. Um, you and give us all these great details of her life, and, I mean... I gotta guess that you haven't lived that kind of life. So where the hell does that stuff come from? You know, a lot of that is actually driving around San Francisco and seeing the people. I mean, it's a festival for the senses. And um, it's funny because uh, actually my wife who's here, she called me once and said, oh, I see this guy on Market Street and he's pulling a, a wheelbarrow and he's, he's dressed in a soda jerk cap and he's handing out coupons. And he became a character in this book. I mean, I see people all the time who I'm like, oh, man, I got to work. I will, I'll email myself, and I'm like, oh, include the guy uh, playing drums on his bike uh, shirtless. You know what I mean? Like, and just going down the street. I mean, you see stuff like that. Like, oh, if nothing else, he needs to make a cameo uh, somewhere. So there's a lot of visual excitement. I mean, uh, just from walking around town. And that's the energy that... You know, I wanted to bring to this book is that energy of San Francisco and the, you know, if you've ever been to Beta Breakers or something like that, you can see how over the top and inventive people are. So I wanted to do the city justice. Josh, uh, your books are, um, I, I like this idea of the trilogy from 
from three different perceptions. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, was that something that you thought of before you wrote the first book? The, I started the third book first. So the, the first book... That's in, Damascus, right? Yeah. And that's coming out. When is that coming uh, out? October. 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 Okay. So the, like the first book introduces the bar Damascus, and the third one's told from the bar owner's perspective. So it kind of brings the universe back full circle. Mm -hmm. um, I remember reading some plays that when Vonnegut turned 50, he wanted to liberate himself from all the characters he'd been writing about over the years, so he decided to, to kill them all. So the one thing I want to, I'm trying to do is I'm trying to burn down this goddamn bar so I don't have to write about it anymore. I'm going to keep going back and keep going back. So that's the whole reason I'm doing this, is get rid of this bar. Is it based on a real bar? It's loosely based on this place, Shotwell. It used to be on 20th and Folsom. Uh -huh. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. It was all painted green, though. I changed it to black for the book. Forest green. A lovely <laughs> shade. <laughs> You know, um, uh, I, one of the things that I think is interesting about both your books is <clears throat> how you get us involved in the, the emotions of the characters and the emotional arcs that the characters go through. Um, your book is a great family saga, and it's, but it's kind of like a, the family saga on some bizarre <laughs> kind of drug. So, uh, and and we, we love these people, and we love to see what happens to them. How much did you know in advance, and how much came out in the prose in terms of creating these families and their emotions? Yeah, I'd say that is something that I wish I was had been better at when I did this because it would have taken me a lot less time. Um, I just wrote a story and didn't know where I was really going, and I had this idea, oh, the French Revolution is one of the most interesting times in history. I mean. If you said today, in a year, we're going to chop off Barack Obama's head in the middle of the mall in D.C., you know, most people would say, that's ridiculous. And then French Revolution, that's exactly what happened. Um, and there was all, you know, you kind of had a license. I wouldn't say that's ridiculous. Well, the Tea Party has been gaining steam. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a frightening possibility. Um, but there, it kind of gave you a license to be, uh, you know, crazy and just, you know, the wild things that really did happen. Um, and so I was captivated with this idea of just kind of lurching around from extreme to extreme, trying to find out, you know, who you are. What is France made of? What is this family made of? Um, and so that idea kept me going, but I didn't, you know, I had this loose structure. I knew the French Revolution vaguely from high school. I read the Wikipedia article several times. Um, and Wikipedia. Uh, oh, totally. And, uh, and, I, and I was like, had to, I was like, okay, we're going to make it loosely figured out. And I had to go, you know, it took way too long. I had to go back and keep banging things so it would roughly approximate what was going on. So I didn't really have a plan, except I wanted to be this extreme kind of lurching around. And I loved the characters. I wanted to see what happened. Um, since then, I've tried to outline better. And I think uh, that, I mean, my next book is, is uh, pretty much done. And um, outlining it saved, I mean, it took a third of the time to write because I had a plan. Um, so planning does make a difference. So you wrote the whole book first in an outline? And then started working on it? For the next one? Yeah. I mean, I had like a three-page, you know, rough outline. I was like, oh, I'll fill it out. Just wanted to see if I had like a general plan that was sure. feasible. Yeah, yeah. Um, at least, you know, some better some better plotting that I wouldn't have to go tear out 100 pages, right. bake in 50, you know, which is usually about the trade. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. That's not I, bad, actually. Yeah, yeah it was, it's painful <laughs> and it takes a long time. So uh, I figured let's hit it, hit it better the first time. And I got better as a writer, too, which saved a lot of time also. I have friends who can write from outlines, and I'm always so jealous of that. I wish I could do that. It's, My mind doesn't work like that. It's, I think it's a religious thing. Yeah, maybe. I think it's depending on whether you, you know, you're 
you're maybe you're Islamic and you're and you write from outlines or yeah. you're a Protestant and you sit there and go, oh my God, what the hell am I gonna say? Right. Which are you? I'm definitely uh, wherever the wind's gonna blow me mm. for sure. I know what the opening image is gonna be, and I never know what chapter two is gonna be. I won't know what the climax is till I write 100, 150 pages. I need that surprise. Mm. Hmm. Now, uh, talk about uh, you know your characters have some pretty rough lives in terms of you know <laughs> their uh, what's going on with them emotionally. Sure. And, and I'm wondering how you how you experience that and how you make that palatable for the reader. Right. And that's that's the t what you do, and that's a real tough call. And I think it has to do with the sense of humor and the prose oh, in your thanks. approach. I think, you know, it also has to do with making sure that you're treating your characters with a lot of respect. You know, mm -hmm. I think you can, you can't condescend to your players because then a reader's not going to be able to empathize, nor can you put them on some sort of pedestal where you're not going to be able to kind of truly access their vulnerabilities and their insecurities. Um, and I think all of that stuff came from, you know, getting sober. I've been off booze and drugs for a couple years now. Um, oh, thank you, sir. That's awesome. And that was where a lot of that came from, which is wanting to understand why I wanted to hurt myself in that way and trying to find a bunch of metaphors to help my mind try to process some of that stuff. Matt, uh, you write extremely well about food. <laughs> and there's a lot of food in this book. <coughs> and I love to cook and I love food. So talk about uh, making that one of, the, one of the themes of your book. Well, San Francisco has a little bit of a reputation for food scene. Um, and so, you know, but it's also kind of ridiculous at the same time, the, the lengths people go to for, you know, I have, I have great friends who have awesome food at their house, but they will say, oh, God, that's from the Safeway. Oh, my God, disgusting. Or, you know, they'll, uh, they'll proclaim never have seen any movie that made over $50 million. And there's a, there can be an attitude about it that is just ripe for kind of having fun with. Because it's terrific, it's great, it's awesome, but it's also, you can't take yourself that seriously. So, um, yeah, I try to have fun with it. I will say The New Yorker runs, you know, three to four food articles a year, which always tops anything I'm working on. And then I have to kind of like... You know, there's all this molecular gastronomy and uh, mm -hmm. ridiculous things. I mean, any anywhere you go, they have new, exciting, you know, 37 flavors of orange that you can put in your soda. Um, and so that keeps pushing you to be really, really inventive um, because you know someone probably has actually done it by now. Um, so it's definitely uh, it's definitely uh, done with love. You know, I love the food scene. I think it's, you know, it's great to have terrific inventive food available. Um, but the people who are behind it sometimes get a little warped from reality. Um, and that is kind of the San Francisco way as well. And the French Revolution, you know, they kind of lost a little bit of track of reality. Um, so I think kind of pointing that out in an entertaining way um, was what I was after. I, and I like that, and that, that idea of, you know, slightly losing track of reality. Because I think there's a, a sensibility in your books, too, of your characters are kind of like... Uh, slightly off the rail with the with the rest of us sure. in terms and I think but what we realize as we read this books as you're reading it and you're immersed in, in the, your character's perceptions think well hell maybe I'm off the rail yeah. <laughs> it's funny too you know when you think about territory that you want to cover as a writer that's already been covered so thoroughly like for example in my first book I knew I wanted to write about a broken home I wanted to write about a little boy who was growing up in an atypical situation and you think about how can you find a new way to say that? I mean, we've talked about that so many times. So I decided to literally break the house 
and the rooms are drifting away from one another like the separating continents. And because it's real to the little boy and we're looking through his eyes, hopefully it becomes real to the reader as well as you're flipping pages along with him. Well, I, I like that idea. I think that uh, a lot of us um, take our perceptions of reality uh, too seriously and there's the, the idea Absolutely. of consensus reality is taken too seriously and I think that we live our lives with a lot more fantasy. And that's why I think both of these books do really well is to, they immerse us, I mean, these both seem real, I mean, but there's a kind of a feel of the fantastic about them because the characters are so vivid and colorful <laughs> and what's happening is so wild but it's not that much more wild probably than the most wild party that any of us have been to in our lives and only barely remember. Definitely. What you guys do, I think, though, is turn that into a life. Well, that's a very nice thing to say. I mean, yeah, I like, I like uh, you know, if all books were wild parties. The thing is, it can't be a wild party the whole time, right? Because then we'd mm -hmm. all die. I mean, that's too much. Um, but I think, like, there's definitely a, something I strive for is, you know, not unchained wildness per se, but uh, inventiveness. I think that's, I think Josh made a great point. You know, there are, there's a, eternal stories that we're always thinking about, you know, death, career, love, uh, you know, kids, you know, where am I in the universe? Questions that we all ask each other. And you can't just write a book about, oh, I didn't know what to do. And, you know, you can't be direct about it. You have to find a way to say it that's fresh. So like the room's splitting apart. Interesting conceit. Haven't heard that one before. You have to you have to find an inventive way to cover ground that we've been before and find a new spin on it. And that's I think what people are yearning for. I mean, they're yearning for a um, a fresh take, a way to process you know the world we live in and all the challenges we all know. Um, and a fresh a fresh take on that can be really refreshing and exciting. It's like oh yeah, familiar emotion, familiar idea. But I hadn't seen the world that way before. And I think that's what I'm going for when I read a great book. And that's what I strive for. And also just realizing like what a luxury it is to be able to make art. I mean, just the fact that we're able to sit and chat about books with other people that love literature is a really amazing thing because writing a, a narrative is such an, a solitary thing. You know, you spend all these hours and days sequestered. You know, when my friends are in Dolores Park, you know, I have to peck away. Nick is kind of lonely. And then when you're able to kind of take it out and have a community experience with, with the book is, I think, such a pivotal thing, too. It's really important. Well, that's something that I, I, I exactly what I wanted to talk about is that I think that your books um bring a book the reading experience is really unique and sure. there's lots of i there's lots of talk about this kind of thing is going to replace that or this is going to replace that i don't <laughs> think anything can actually replace a reading experience because it's kind of to me it seems like a a directed form of meditation sure and but rather than meditate on ohm you're meditating on uh, you're in the mind of a man who threw his girlfriend down the stairs and then finds himself right. at, uh, in the restroom with the wombats. <laughs> Go wombats! <laughs> Go wombats! I'm sticking out of that restroom. Yeah. <laughs> but I, so I, I'd like you to talk about. I think it really is reading is a much more communal experience than than it's taken to be because when I read this book and when Jan or Kelly or Dorothy or Charles or yeah. you all read your book, we're all reading the same words, but we have our own take on sure. it. Sure. Well, ho hopefully, too, that, you know, reading is such an active experience um, because, you know, the, the writer is going to put the pieces out there 
but you have to kind of compile your own interpretation of the facts. Mm -hmm. It isn't like going to see, you know, Transformers 7, where you just kind of like, you know, sit there and they, and they connect all the dots for you. It's this kind of spoon feeder, or they pander to you. So we all plug in our independent mind to the images we're seeing on the page. And at the end of it, we say, this is what it meant to me. And hopefully we were able to chat with somebody else who really enjoys books and they say, oh, I didn't, I didn't look at it like that. I saw X and Y. Mm -hmm. And then you're able to engage in this sort of dialogue about what the experience added up to for you personally. And that's the really exciting part about reading for me. Right. Well, and with books like both of yours, um, especially uh, books that involve a sense of humor, but that's dodgy. I mean, right. some of this stuff, you know, that's not funny, that's sad. Or no, that's, that's funny. That's right. really, really funny. Well, I think one thing that I've, you know, I, I got a day job, and the thing everybody talks about at lunch and at, you know, get-togethers, TV. People are like, oh, did you see The Office? Did you see whatever? And there's a lot more retelling jokes and retelling moments and reliving moments, and there's not much interpretation. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think one thing that is missing is it's not it's much rarer these days that everybody reads the same book and can talk about it. You know, it's great if you're in a book club or if you're in something like that and you can all get together. And that's a lot of fun because you can share your interpretation. Um, and, uh, you know, we just need more of that. I, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know if I'm asking for more hits. I don't know really what I want, but it's, it's <laughs> kind of a, you know, when you're at. When you're at these lunches, people are like, oh, The Office was so funny last night. I'm like, yeah, it was. And then that's it. You just kind of relive a funny moment. It's not like, oh, I took it to mean this, and it reminded me of this other thing. It, it's kind of a I, – I miss that sharingness. And I find that with myself, it usually happens with one or two other people who I know have read the same book. We talk about it at dinner or something, and it's, it's awesome because you get to see, oh, that reminded me of another book I read or that was a fresh take on something. Um, so I think Josh is right with the, with the – the strength of interpretation. Um, and it's just harder and harder to, because there are so many books too, uh, mm. so many great books. There's um, a lot of really good books. Very fragmented. Yeah. That's yeah. one thing, you know, I was reading your blog about uh, book reviewing. Mm -hmm. and, and you brought up some interesting points about, you know, whether, you know, to do a hatchet job or a blow job or, sure. or, or in between. Don't do a hatchet job and a blow job because that's just, <laughs> it's going to be messy and I don't want to be part of that. Yeah. I tried that once in college. Yeah. Well, because I, I was asked to review uh, James Franco's story collection for the New York Times. And it was weird because I didn't really like the book that much. So it became this weird push-pull between do I want to get in the way of another artist finding an audience? And kind of the, when I did some soul searching, the, what I came down to was, well, he's already a millionaire, so it didn't really bother me as much. Like, you know, if he you know, was a struggling writer like me and Matt, I would never publish an ill word about somebody else's art um, just because I don't want to impede a writer finding, you know, another couple heads out there. Well, why, what's the point mm. getting in the way? Well, I think, too, um, yeah, I, I would agree. And it. I think, too, it's interesting to just, there are so many good books sure. out there that deserve the attention, like both of your books, and there's uh, passels of books here. I think as a reviewer, it's our job to, you know, we're better off saying, this book is worth your valuable time, rather than saying, this book sucks. I mean, Absolutely. I, I don't want to read a, a, about a book that sucks. I just wasted my time reading about a book I don't want to read. Totally. It's it's kind of an insane proposition unless it's a super popular book. Yeah, and like for for Franco too, especially because he's already famous. Mm. I'm sure that was reviewed in every major newspaper in the country instead of 
a really good book with a smaller press or an mm -hmm. unknown writer that didn't get any coverage at all. Now, speaking of publishing, uh, you guys both have taken somewhat unusual steps to publishing. And Matt, <coughs> <laughs> what, what possessed you? Tell, tell us what you did with this book, how it sure. first it came to the world, and what the hell was in your mind? So on uh, Bastille Day, 2009, <laughs> I, start, I started releasing this book on Twitter. Um, so how does that work? First, that's stupid. First, first response to do to that's a really stupid thing to do. Um, who's going to read a book on Twitter? And I would agree, nobody's going to read a book on Twitter. Um, it's really not a good way to read. Much better to read the actual book. Um, but uh, I, my th my thinking was, hey, I write pretty good sentences, you know, on a sentence level. Um, I had a friend write a program, and it split it up in 140 character chunks. And if you saw it coming across Twitter, you could click on it and learn more. And you know, like watching a couple minutes of a TV show before you want to order the whole series. Um, Did anybody actually read the whole thing no, online? No, I mean it's it's you know the way it comes up, it's in reverse order, oh, so you'd have to read the sentence. It's it's not a good, but I had links to ways you could download it. Basically, what happened was I had a I had an agent. I was excited about my book. We sent it out a bunch of publishing houses. I got a lot of exuberant rejections. Uh, the economy hit the uh, hit the skids. Um, and, uh, you know, I went and did a rehash, and I, and I redid it, and we resubmitted to a bunch of people. And I was starting to get some more no's. I was looking like, you know, no one's going to buy this book. Uh, I was looking at the end of the road, and it was uh, a very scary moment. So I was like, what the hell? I'm put it on Twitter. See what, what's the worst that's going to happen? Um, and I wound up getting a book deal a couple months later. Um, the edit people at Soft Skull, which is my publisher, were very upfront in saying, look, we think the Twitter thing was awesome and exciting and interesting. Um, but we're not buying this because it was on Twitter. We're buying it because we love this book. Um, and that was really important to hear because no one's going to buy a book or be interested in a book because it was on Twitter. Most people think that's stupid. Um, but they will buy a book or read a book because other people think it's a good book. Um, and that's the, the number one thing I've always been after. But, you know, it's the French Revolution. Why not try something crazy was kind of my approach. It's a good idea. Yeah. It worked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so now and then it works. So. <laughs> Josh, you chose a small <coughs> publisher, too. Tell us about your publisher well, and your deal with them. Chose is a very magnanimous way to phrase that. I think, like, like Matt, my rejection might not have been quite as exuberant. I think I heard a lot more of, like, you're a filthy pervert, and what's your problem? That seemed to be more the reaction my novel excited. Um, and Franco, too? <laughs> So, I, you know, we, we, my agent shopped it to 20 houses, and, you know, they all said, it's too dirty. No one's going to buy this book. Really? Yeah. I, you know, I, real quick, but just a, as a slight diversion, you guys are absolute masters of using the word fuck and shit and every other <laughs> word you're not supposed to say on the radio. <laughs> In a way that's nice, not too much. Just enough, funny, and I think that's a that's a, a skill. It was funny too because one of the I remember one of the editors when she was telling me no said, "Well, I just don't think twenty five thousand people are going to buy this book." And I was like, "Shit, I don't think twenty five thousand people are going to buy this book." Is that what we were even talking about? Yikes! Like that's terrifying to me. Uh, it's yeah. really weird. One thing you learn, though, through the process is, like, small publishers and small independent bookstores are really essential to finding new things. Because if you don't fit into, like, what's definitely going to sell, if you're in that maybe or weird or, you know, it really 
off the the usual path category, it's not in their interest to take the risk. Um, you know, big bookstores don't necessarily have people there who are going to take that risk. They have shareholders and and stuff. And then you meet the people who really love books, um, and they don't care as much. They're more they're really in it for the the great story. So as I've been through this process. I've, I've really grown a deep appreciation for people who are willing to find new voices and take some risks. Absolutely. It's also one of the, there's like this weird backward mechanism where salespeople or marketing people in the publishing world are responding to what's been popular for the last 12 or 18 months. But we're setting the trends. Like That's we're, exactly we're right. what's coming next. Yes. So for them to tell us where, what box we should fit in doesn't make any sense because we're going to make the boxes up as we go along. Like, what what would, what box did Tom Waits fit in in 1982, you know, or the Flaming Lips in 1989? Like, those boxes weren't there until those those artists created those boxes. It's like they're driving down the freeway looking in the rearview mirror. For sure, exactly. And, and they can't figure out why they keep getting in train wrecks. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, uh you know, Soft Skull Press does a lot of really interesting stuff. And um, who's your publisher again? I publish with a little house out of Brooklyn called Two Dollar Radio. Brooklyn, that's interesting. And How did you get hooked up with the Brooklyn Press? I would Soft, uh, Soft Skull, uh, San Francisco, or, or? they're kind of uh, they just closed the New York office actually, so mm -hmm. they're now based in uh, Berkeley. No, oh, cool. Um, Borders, uh, Borders uh, Bookstore just declared bankruptcy. In case you were wondering, nice. so <laughs> all that, uh, all those corporate bookstores, uh, yeah, I, I see yeah. some clapping. That's that's good, good to hear. Yeah, I mean, these people times. don't don't understand. I think there's a, a a big disconnect between people who try to sell art and and people who make art sure. and people who actually want to buy it, and, and that you you can't sell. Uh, a novel like the French Revolution or the Tar Termite Parade, it's it's not a hamburger, right? And, and it's not a frozen dinner, right? Is it? It's interesting too when you start to think about kind of being realistic about your own aesthetic or your own style. Like I used to joke with people all the time when my first book came out, like, oh, it's this prurient little story, you know, it'll never be on Oprah, ha, ha, ha. That was like my running joke. And then it ended up making Oprah's 10 best of the year. <laughs> and I was like, really? Like when my agent called, I kind of thought she was fucking with me a little bit. I'm like, you're, you're kidding, right? How did that even happen? How'd they know about that? So. I got I to gotta say a quick word on Borders. Like, I'm a little bit sad, and here's why. Because um, I remember when they weren't the big bad chain, you know? I, I remember they opened a Borders near where I grew up in Maryland, and my dad went out and got the sweatshirt. And, uh, like, it was the first time there was a book. There's no Amazon or anything. There's no way to get books, really, without traveling for half an hour, 45 minutes to get to a store. And there were people there who loved books. There was this culture. They were the upstart. And my aunt and uncle actually teach at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, where Borders is based. And they were always talking about this feisty, uh, you know, obviously things changed. Um, but, uh, but there was a time when Borders was really, uh, there was really, they had book people who loved books, who would, give you a book because they loved it and, and the heart, it was all about the heart and the right idea. And I think indie bookstores have captured that spirit. Um, there are people there who love books and I think that's, what's, that's what works. People want to be around, readers want to be around other passionate readers and learn from them. What should I be reading? What do you accept? You know, there's, look at this store. There's thousands of books in there. We can't read them all. We need somebody to tell us what 
you know me. I like this book. What else will I like? Um, and you lose some of that when you're selling hamburgers. That's that's true. That's really well said. And I'll agree though about Borders because I've talked to some <coughs> one of their buyers, um, and he was a re- the guy who was uh, their science fiction buyer, and he was a smart guy. He liked good books. He actually brought. I said you need to bring in this Phil Rickman guy. He's a Welsh mystery writer, and his books are published, I think, by Quirkus. And he brought them in. Oh, wow. and, and I mean, you know, there are good books, but. Uh, and I think on the individual level, on uh, at the people at the bookstores, the people in management, the people who are, who are the staff, are generally, even in the chain bookstores, tend to actually like reading, actually like books. Mm-hmm. But the people making the decisions at the, at the corporate level <laughs> are trying to sell as many Tom Clancy, uh, ghost-written, whatever they are, as, as humanly possible and sure. not, not making, you know, that stuff, you can't survive, you can't, survive right. on that kind of model where there's you have to have one hit that makes 10 billion dollars and that's what you guys bring and what soft skull and uh, two dollar radio press brings is the variety right i think it's harder for smaller presses too because my my publisher only publishes literary fiction i think soft skulls is like that too so they don't have cookbooks or you know celebrity memoirs to kind of subsidize this habit so it's they're all it's always such an uphill such an uphill battle for them well, now, um, tell us about what you're each working on next. Well, my next novel is called Duct Tape. It's about a homeless man in search of his imaginary son. Dun, dun, dun. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, and I'm trying to get started on the one after that. And I've had a couple of false starts, and I'm trying to get my feet under me. So if anybody has any good ideas, let me know. He's soliciting ideas That's from you right. guys. This is big. This could be your chance to be in a novel. <laughs> Josh, what are you, you, how's Damascus, is Damascus done? Do you have your... It's done, yeah. And you've killed the bar? I've killed the bar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although I'm just sick enough, like I could see my, like having somebody rebuild it like 18 months later. <laughs> yeah, so the third book will, it's called Damascus and it'll come out next October. What are you working on now? It's a good question. I don't know, like I feel this immense liberation to kind of be out of this ecosystem, but with that sort of opportunity is really kind of intimidating at the same time. I don't know what's next. Well, you know, maybe this is a good time to talk to each of you about beginning a new when you've like wiped out your ideas. I mean, you guys have each, uh, you guys are both in a post-apocalyptic world right That's now. True. For sure. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So how do you rebuild out of the apocalypse? I mean, what do you do that gets you interested in writing again and starts the, puts the pen to the page or the fingers to the keyboard? I'm all about finding some routine that's going to just force you to focus. Um, and I actually did NaNoWriMo last year, which is National Novel Writing Month. It's November. You're supposed to write 50,000 words in a month. And I got to 44,000, and I realized the book was just awful. Um, but at least I found out fast. That's kind of my approach. I did, I, you know, I did, took 26, 27 days. I got through it. I realized this book's going to be bad. Great, you know, now I can move on to the next thing. And I haven't been as disciplined on the next thing. So, uh, yeah, for me, it's just kind of, I'm trying to find characters who I want to ride with. You know, I'm trying to find characters I want to, I want to see what they do. Um, and I'm, I think I'm at the edges of them. And I need to, I need to find the core. So you're looking at characters. You're not like reading nonfiction or something that, uh, to, you know, World War, history of World War II butter. Just Wikipedia for me. No, um, I, uh, no, I actually rarely read 
nonfiction. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to learn from great fiction that's out there. So uh, I, I don't read it that much. I, that said, I think, and I've, you know, there's an E.L. Doctorow and asked, I think it was about the March, like, you know, how much research did you do? And he said, just enough. Um, <laughs> I definitely feel that way usually. Um, but I do think I'm going to have to do a little more homework on um, the way I'm going right, um, right now. So, yeah, we'll see. But mostly I read fiction to keep, you know, learning what I'm missing and what's going on and try to improve. I had a teacher in grad school who, if she came to the end of the first page and there's nothing interesting going on, she'd write at the bottom, where's the grenade? Um, and I always think about that in terms of image, like having this like really exciting, captivating image right off the bat that's going to really grab your reader. So I always have to start with, with image or with hook. Um, and once I find my way into that, then I can usually start to build a world around it. But until I know what that opening moment's going to be, I'll just be kind of standing on the sidelines, I think. I love that idea of building a world. That's, a, a sci uh, that's out of the science fiction genre. That's how they start their works. And, and I like the idea of building a world that's like <coughs> the world of termite parade. Sure. So really, it is its own world. And it comes well, and even, to you know, even, even realism, if, we're writing, if I was to write something where we're sitting in this room right here, you know, you'd be looking through somebody else's heart, somebody else's soul, somebody's mind that you've never seen the world through before. So it would be an entirely new world anyways. One thing that was interesting about Na NaNoWriMo, or National Novel Writing Month, is they send you emails over the course of the month that roughly track with like where you should be. So they're like, okay, right now you're probably feeling like you've written the worst thing ever. And I was like, yes, I have, I am. <laughs> and so you get advice like crash the spaceship, you know, like do something crazy here, or like ride it out. And they would give you a, I'm trying, I do think it was good advice because there's definitely a point where where I tend to, where I am now, um, it's just like, ah, oh, things are happening, but it's not, you know, the, the oomph isn't there, the, traje the trajectory isn't there. Um, and, and that's something you just gotta feel, and sometimes you're just too close, and you do it every day, and you got 10 pages, and you, you, you're not zooming through it like you should be, because you're too close to it. Uh, but it's a good thing to remember. I, I enjoyed those. It, w it was kind of awesome that someone knew exactly where you were, and they could send you a little note that would be like, yeah, I do feel that way, and I kind of wish we, there was somebody doing that for me. Any volunteers? Uh, <laughs> please <laughs> let me know. And, and just to conclude, uh, I'd like you to tell me um, what's your reading right now, if anything? I'm teaching a, a graduate class for the first time at University of San Francisco, and I'm so buried. I'm not reading anything except student papers. Oh, so my God. I'll probably poke my head up in July, mm. come up for something to read. Student papers. Well, that's an interesting, uh, there's a, that's an interesting genre right there. <laughs> I mean, right. It is indeed. <laughs> and they should all be crashing the spaceship right about now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, make something happen. <laughs> Matt? Uh, I'm reading The Invisible Mountain by Carolina de Robertis, I want to say. I, she's a, I was on a debut novelist panel with her, and I did the classic bought the book for my wife, and now I'm reading it um, thing, which has been great. I've also got a big stack of noir. I just went to the San Francisco Noir Movie Festival, and one of my favorite parts is upstairs. They have a bookseller, and every year I tell them, oh, this is what you gave me last year. Here's what I like and didn't like, and they'll be like, okay, that's what you want now. So, uh I'm definitely in a noir, bit of a noir phase. Do we have any questions from the audience? It's more of a comment. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up in a part of the world that was constantly in crisis, the Ohio River Valley. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the ability to tell a good story about whatever had gone on and, and, and lot, 
make good lies about it, which sure. was, a, was definitely a part of the tradition. So it was almost you look forward to the, you know, the storm that wiped out whatever, right. or you know, the the snowstorm that buried the entire town <laughs> and, and wiped them out. You know, whatever it was, but but it was you know the telling about the floods and and things was and and I looking at what's happening financially to people at this point in time. And your both of your books are just wonderful in that tradition, being able to really make a good story out of it, to really have something that had some teeth in it that, that takes the sting away from from maybe, you know, getting losing your house. Absolutely. You know, those kinds of things, you know, having your heart broken. Right. It's you know, you it, it's really a good part of recovery and being able to stand on your feet again. And so the timing of these books are is wonderful. Oh wow. What a nice thing to say. Yeah, thank you very much. Sure. And I like that idea of kind of the the way that the personal mythology intersects with the kind of the communal mythology. We're, we're, we're talking about our own, you know, obstacles that we're overcoming and whatnot, but we're also talking about our neighbor and the person down the street. And that sort of shared experience is so vital, for sure. I mean, Johnstown Flood, I mean, that was a good part of every Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Have you ever read uh, Donald Ray Pollock? No, I he's a He's an Ohio writer wrote a short story collection a couple years ago called Knock'em Stiff. That's actually the name of the holler he grew up in, and it is a fantastic read. You should check it out. He's amazing. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Um, everybody here, buy a book. There's a stack of books right over there. Take one away. And there's a, there's a lot of like really good books signed first editions by Joe Nesbo. Jessica Queller, who's I think writes on, she used to write on Gilmore Girls, but she's got something else. And then her book is a personal memoir that's really intense and very interesting. Uh, uh, the new, the first novel, post-apocalyptic novel by the son of Jean Le Carre. Oh. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of books out there. Um, and I hope that you'll all come back next month. We've got uh, Jasper Ford coming from England. <gasps> And <laughs> it'll be a lot of fun. He's got a new, he has a new uh, Thursday next book coming out. Thank you for joining me. And listen tomorrow, I've got uh, David Van on. He's got a fabulous book called Caribou Island that is, that'll tear your heart apart and is also very funny. Yeah, he's just a colleague like, of mine, yeah. Yeah, they, just like these gentlemen. Thank you guys for joining me. You are great. Thanks for having us. Thank you very Appreciate much. You. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.